There's a pretty strong relationship between money and mental health, and it seems to go in both directions. There's very good correlational evidence showing that the two go together. So poor people tend to have worse mental health outcomes than rich people. And this even holds at the country level. So poor countries tend to have higher prevalence of mental disorders than rich countries. We think that people should be thinking from a very young age about financial well-being and mental well-being and how they link them together. Intuitively, the idea of giving people free money seems like a recipe for the disaster. But actually, all of the evidence suggests that it is the only way of dealing with the myriad crises that we're currently facing. Welcome Whatever Works. Money and mental health. Introducing our speakers, Johannes Hauschhofer, Matthew Johnson and Laura Peters. Hello, my name is Johannes Haushofer. I'm a professor of economics at Stockholm University, currently visiting NUS in Singapore. And I'm originally from Germany, have spent most of my career in the UK and the US, and I'm now based in Sweden. And my research interests are broadly in development economics and behavioral economics. So I'm Matthew Johnson. I'm professor of politics at Northumbria University. Um, and I've had a long-standing interest in universal basic income and its uh, potential impact as a means of dealing with mental health. My name is Laura Peters and I am Head of Mental Health and Money Advice at Rethink Mental Illness. What's the relationship between money and mental health? So we kind of think of poverty and mental health problems as being in a bit of a vicious cycle. Um, so first of all, um, you might imagine a person who maybe doesn't experience any mental health problems at all. Um, and who is um, suddenly has a, an income shock. They might lose their job, maybe a relationship ends, something like that, and suddenly their financial situation changes. Now, obviously, that money problem is usually going to cause some kind of worry and stress, and that's perfectly normal. But for a lot of people who um, are experiencing that worry and stress, they might actually find that the worry and stress doesn't go away, and they start experiencing a mental health problem. So, Money worries can certainly be the cause of a mental health problem. Um, there are mental illnesses where clearly some of the symptoms of that illness might make it more difficult for somebody to manage their money. Um, you know, a really um, obvious example is somebody with bipolar disorder who might impulse spend during a period of mania. Um, but also in a sort of um, a less obvious way, somebody with schizophrenia might experience cognitive issues due to their illness and they might find it very difficult to put a budget together. And actually people with things like depression and anxiety often get into avoidance um, issues around money. Um, and so um, mental health problems can also cause and or exacerbate uh, money worries. And so they can often end up in this vicious cycle where often um, if there's, particularly if there's nobody to intervene, those things will kind of spiral and get, get worse and worse as time goes on. There's a pretty strong relationship between money and mental health, and it seems to go in both directions. There's very good correlational evidence showing that the two go together. So poor people tend to have worse mental health outcomes than rich people. And this even holds at the country level. So poor countries tend to have higher prevalence of mental disorders than rich countries. Um, and there's also now starting to be very good causal evidence in both directions. So in, on the one hand, there is now strong evidence showing that when you improve someone's economic situation, either by cash transfers, so just giving them money or through some other economic mechanism, that improves their mental health considerably. 
that's been shown very robustly now. On, in the other direction, there's also starting to be evidence. So when you improve people's mental health through therapy, for example, uh, there's starting to be evidence to suggest that that also improves their economic situation, for example, because people are able to earn a living again. The body of evidence suggests that there is clearly a close relationship between um, income and, and mental health. And the work that we've done over the last few years has, has demonstrated that that's not just a close relationship. It is it has a degree of causation associated with it. And it is, in lots of different ways, the key primary driver of people's anxiety and depression. But I, th I think there's a, a body of evidence to suggest that actually the primary driver of people's health outcomes in this, in this particular context is, is their income, their, the degree to which their income or their wealth provides them with security by which to um, not just be free from stress uh, or to have their stress mitigated, but to take those big leaps in terms of investing in their long-term future, in terms of getting on in work and investing in education and in investing in entrepreneurialism and, and, and earning much more as a consequence. So it's tempting to think that um, there is a lot of complexity, but most of the data that I've seen actually suggests a pretty simple, um, perhaps not linear, but certainly monotonic relationship. The more money you have, the better it is for your mental health. And of course, it doesn't guarantee it. That's a given. There are very unhappy rich people and they're probably very happy poor people. But on average, it really does seem to be true that more money is a good thing. And there are often attempts to nuance this a little bit. So, for example, maybe some kinds of happiness are uh, stop growing in income at some point. But that evidence is really quite weak. Uh, and so on the whole, I would say it really is pretty straightforward. What financial challenges are young people facing? Obviously, there is the cost of living crisis, which we cannot escape. Um, and it's looming large in, in all of our lives. Uh, young people themselves and also parents of young people are really in the position in 2022 where um, previously, um, the levels of income that they're re receiving, they might have actually been reasonably comfortable or, 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 or managing at least. Um, and actually now we've got a lot more people who are moving from that, that managing and even that comfortable kind of section down into actually experiencing poverty because they can't afford to uh, buy the basics. Um, and again, for a lot of people, you know, for a lot of parents of young people, that might be the first time that they're really experiencing any kind of money problem. And going to be a shock and it's definitely going to affect their mental health um, and obviously that's going to impact the, the mental health of a young person as well especially if they're being pushed into poverty and for young people who are managing their own finances you know having to learn you know how to budget and how to you know um, look after your money at a time where actually it's very very difficult to have a budget that balances um, is, is, is even worse really. Financial education is really, really important and it needs to start from a really young age um, and really it needs to be integrated into into people's kind of normal education, if you like. So uh, people should be, you know, going to school and learning about their finances. And actually, we think that people should be um, learning about their mental health alongside that as well um, and thinking from a very young age about financial well-being and mental well-being and how they link them together. 
Can economic interventions like cash transfers help? We did a systematic review and meta-analysis of all the randomized controlled trials that have ever been done studying the effect of an economic intervention on mental health outcomes. And when I say economic intervention, I mean quite broadly uh, interventions that improve people's economic situation. So we considered, for example, cash transfers, both conditional and unconditional. Uh, unconditional means you just get the money. Conditional means you have to do something in order to keep getting the money. For example, send your kids to school. Uh, we also studied housing voucher programs where people receive an opportunity to move to a better neighborhood, uh, health insurance, uh, lottery wins. Um, I think those were the, the main program, asset transfer programs and ultra poor graduation programs. So those are comprehensive packages that deliver several different ingredients including many of the ones that I just described as a bundle. And we summarize all of these studies, uh, and this is across countries, um, many different studies, many different countries, and just calculate whether, on average, these interventions improve people's mental health. And we find broadly that they do. There's a pretty robust positive effect on psychological well-being. And this is true for uh, several different types of mental well-being. So it's true for depression, but also for stress, happiness, life satisfaction. And it's also true across many different types of economic intervention. So it's probably strongest for cash transfers and these ultra-poor graduation programs that I mentioned, perhaps asset transfers also, and slightly weaker for some of the other programs. But most of these interventions have positive impacts on mental health. And those findings are pretty robust depending on, you know, they don't vary much if we add control variables or omit control variables and so on. But on the whole, there's really a dearth of evidence, I would say, on how economic transfers impact young people in particular. They're mostly developed to middle-aged folks. Cash transfers have a pretty international history. They've also been used in the U.S. and other high-income countries. But in recent years, there's been uh, a profusion of research on cash transfers in low-income countries. And some of these other programs, like ultra-poor graduation programs, they've primarily been used in low-income countries. And so uh, the vast majority of our studies uh, come from low- and middle-income countries. I think there's plenty of evidence to suggest that more financial security uh, leads to better mental health outcomes. Um, but we, we do need better evaluation of cash transfer schemes and I think I think that's one of the, the good things that's come out of this welcome trust funded research which is the, the creation of a generic adaptive protocol resource to evaluate comprehensively the health impacts of, of cash transfers in, in, in any different number of um, cash transfer schemes. We need also to consider the way in which particular parts of the population understand and respond to the particular nuances of cash transfers. And for that, you need comprehensive citizen engagement with those parts of the country that are most in need of, of, of levelling up. So you need serious PPI, you need serious uh, comprehensive involvement of communities within uh, design and development of different cash transfer programmes. But you need more broadly than that open-mindedness uh, in government, and in, uh, within the civil service. And for that, you need long-term uh, comprehensive engagement with, with government in terms of providing the evidence base to establish the sorts of costs and benefits 
uh, that are involved in these sorts of schemes. We can see how like a, a variety of interventions can can improve somebody's well-being. Um, I think what's interesting about Johannes's work um, is is this lack of conditionality. So ultimately, the work that we're doing, there is some kind of conditionality applied to it. So when somebody's claiming benefits, you know, they're going to have to go for reassessments um, every few years. Um, if they're um, managing their debts, they're going to need to do a budget sheet and kind of, um, you know, work that out and try and negotiate with their their creditors um, and so there's kind of a lot of yeah a lot of, of work involved if you like which obviously causes some some kind of stress as well so it's really interesting to see how much somebody's well-being can improve with a really simple intervention um, where, where there isn't conditionality attached and somebody can just sort of be lifted out of poverty in a quick way without having to sort of kind of think too much about it or take too many actions. What impact could we see from universal basic income? So this this project has achieved four things. It's demonstrated that there are feasible UBI schemes that can be adopted within the UK. It's demonstrated that those schemes actually are really quite popular, especially in those uh, parts of the country that are most in need of levelling up. It's demonstrated that UBI interventions are potentially transformative in terms of people's mental and, and as a consequence, physical well-being and health. And it's demonstrated that we can really quite easily evaluate uh, much more clearly and effectively uh, the sorts of UBI pilots that governments are currently considering. What's needed next is a comprehensive capacity to ensure that uh, comparisons can be made between government proposals for well, uh, tax welfare uh, re- reform and alternatives like universal basic income. We don't have that, that ability at the minute. We need for uh, public health and health economics the same sort of capacity that the IFS has for economics to provide rapid response, comprehensive, cohesive analysis of the impact that uh, tax welfare reforms will have on uh, population health. So we've looked at um, a range of longitudinal studies, uh, Millennium Court studies, uh, Next Steps and Understanding Society. And in each of those different studies, we've found uh, clear health gradients. Now, while they, these are really complex uh, and uh, complicated cohorts to analyse, you can see that there is at least a clear relationship between uh, financial security and people's uh, anxiety and, and depression outcomes. All of the work that we've done in terms of uh, modelling suggests that you can have quite a significant impact through even cautious starter level UBI schemes and a really quite significant impact through more substantive uh, UK wide uh, UBI uh, MIS level, uh, minimum income level, minimum income standard level uh, interventions. So the research that we've done has suggested not just that UBI is needed and is affordable, um, but we'll have a significant impact. And moreover, if we can get government to commit to uh, a trial at a, a population level, a town level, uh, a ward level even, um, we'd be able to evaluate that trial consistently and effectively in order to, to develop a generalizable case for a UK-wide rollout. This is one of the key means we have at our disposal of de- uh, for dealing with uh, what is it, an enormous mental health crisis. Many different kinds of economic intervention very robustly and reliably improve people's mental well-being. And 
that sounds a bit trivial perhaps, but it wasn't so long ago that you were laughed out of the room when you made that statement because people had this romanticized view of poverty um, and that if you helped poor people be richer, that would lead to all sorts of issues like conflict and alcohol and drug consumption and uh, people stopping to work. None of those, which then would have bad implications for mental health. And none of those things came to pass. And so um, from that perspective, no, it's, it's very exciting and encouraging to see that it's really quite simple. You know, if you improve people's economic situation, they, they do better in, on the psychological dimension. The good thing about examination of universal basic income is that it is generalizable to different cultural and national contexts. So what, what we find is that there is a big impact on people's mental and physical health as soon as you reach certain thresholds. So if you get in the UK past thresholds at 20, 25,000 pounds a year for households, um, you suddenly see a dip in the level of anxiety and depression. Um, and people quite quickly, as soon as you approach the median, um, see that their, their health and well-being increasing really quite rapidly. What you see at the top end is that once you get into almost double the median, people start to make financial commitments that reduces their financial security. So this is an established feature of the literature worldwide that in various different societies, once you reach a, a threshold of income, people make financial commitments that increase their spread, their stress levels, increase their exposure to destitution, actually reduces some of their, their health outcomes. So if you if you increase people's income to towards the median and you put constraints on the kind of financial uh, risks that people may expose themselves to you've got a model of impact for policy making almost globally uh, you just need to uh, set the income levels uh, to national standards and and that's really quite an easy task that can be undertaken by economists in any different number of societies so if you take each of those words very seriously, universal basic income, um, especially the universal part, that means you're in the business of giving, you know, Jeff Bezos a, month, a monthly welfare check. And we may or may not want to do that as a society. Um, and we may or may not be able to afford it. Um, if you are going to leave intact all the other programs that we have, it's going to be quite expensive to deploy true universal basic income, I think in most countries. Um, if you're gonna replace some of the existing social programs with a universal basic income, you're in the business of having to justify why you wanna send Jeff Bezos that welfare check rather than the person who was getting it previously. And so, or at least some of the money would now have to go to Jeff Bezos, which probably currently there's not so much. So that makes it a little trickier from the policy perspective. Having said that, I think they're extremely attractive features from the policy perspective, which is just the simplicity of the intervention. So just giving people money is very cheap to do. You don't need a lot of administrative overhead. Um, it's, there's, a, there's a dignity element to it when people just get the money and can spend it however they want. They don't have to stand in line, hopefully. They don't have to fill out endless forms. There's some really attractive features of it about it. And so I'm really hoping that it'll be tested much more extensively and we just experiment with it um, until we figure out a good way to deploy it. How can we protect mental health with social security systems? Ultimately, if somebody cannot afford to pay for their housing, 
to pay their utility bills, to buy food, their well-being will be severely impacted by that. Um, and, and I think kind of money is probably just one pillar of that as well. So that I definitely think there needs to be more work done around the different social problems that people might experience and A, how that impacts on their mental health and whether it makes their mental health worse, you know, if they're in poor housing or they have limited social connectedness, but also how for people living already with a mental illness, how they might be more at risk of money problems, of reduced social connectedness, of housing issues. So it's really important that um, policymakers do keep in mind how much a social problem is actually a mental health problem and vice versa. Um, and that we, while we're so passionate in thinking about mental health and how to improve that across the country, um, that we consider that actually social problems, in particular money, are a real big factor in that. And, and, and that's one of the things that kind of needs to be sorted first, really. What we see is that it's the working population, actually, that, that are left out of discussion of, of social security. And it's the working population, really, that, that needs the support uh, immediately, urgently, uh, and in ways that we don't necessarily recognise. It's the working population that, that is often um, in forms of employment that are deeply damaging, um, that uh, people are, are staying on in, in work much later in their lives than they really should do. That's costly to uh, society as a whole and costly to the NHS in terms of long-term health problems. Um, what, what we need is much less conditionality. We need everybody to have access to resources. And we need to recognise that the current system doesn't punish the, uh, the people that, that people want it to punish. Um, people want people who are inactive, uh, people who, who are not contributing to have their resources taken away from them current system doesn't necessarily do that effectively but what it does do is it strips security from those who do need the, the social security those in work and the consequence of all of that is that people who are in work are more stressed than they need be they take decisions that are directly harmful to their their mental health and their health overall they make financial commitments that they shouldn't make so we need a a social security system for, for everyone uh, and universal basic income is, is the, the most plausible multi-purpose policy instrument that we have at our disposal. What would you like to see in future research? So I'd really be curious to see what happens when you do a head-to-head -head comparison of, let's say, a cash transfer and a psychotherapy intervention that's state of the art. I've done it in my own work and the cash transfer was much more successful than the uh, psychotherapy. That's a little bit of an outlier because in our case, the psychotherapy didn't work at all. Whereas in most cases, it really is a pretty good intervention. So I'd love to see studies of that nature. And there's a couple of reasons to think that the cash is gonna fare pretty well. The main one being that it's really quite robust and universal. So. What I've seen suggests to me that it really works very broadly for everybody, whereas the mental health interventions are perhaps more um, fragile and you have to do more work to adapt them to the context and the specific person who's getting it. And all of that makes it expensive. And so at the end of the day, you've spent quite a lot of money on even a simple mental health intervention. And uh, I think it's a really important question to ask, how much could you have achieved by just giving people that money directly? Visit the Wellcome website to find out more about mental health at the Wellcome Trust.